This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. The five prayers you pray so that you get the answer you want. I'm going to suggest that you're no longer serving God. You're serving a version of yourself, a computer-generated version of yourself. And I think the book of Revelation calls us back to the mystery the mystery of this God we serve, and the fact that it's mysterious is wonderful because it reminds us that God is, we are, have a lot of finitude when it comes to ourselves. We've got a beginning and an end, and I mean, you're confusing, but like confusing kind of in a dollar store gone wild way. Not that you're, that was a very bad metaphor that I didn't write down in my notes, and I just should stick to the notes. <laughs> Some of you are like, whoa, this is like really going off the rails. Uh, but, but God is not confusing, but he is deeper and bigger, wider, higher, more than we can ever ask, more than we could ever comprehend. And this is what Revelation reminds us. So let's get to the text. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1 today. Uh, we know from last week, we talked about how Revelation is written to persecuted Christians people who are under the gun, so to speak. They're in a place where 40,000 of them have already been killed. Uh, they have a crazy emperor who, who says that they must worship him as God, and if you are a Christian, you cannot do that. They're really under the gun, and John writes this letter to them from the island of Patmos to encourage them. And what's interesting is that right from the beginning, John gets... Um, a vision of Jesus, and this is really important for us to hang on to from the beginning of the book of Revelation, because as we get into chapter 3, 4, say 6 through 12, it's going to get a bit wild, but if you can remember that at the beginning of Revelation, that John sees a vision of Jesus, this will anchor us the whole way through this. So it's interesting because um, John is on Patmos, he is a prisoner, Christians are under major pressure, and what does God do? Does he say, now arm yourselves, everybody get out there, we're going to start an army. Everybody get your, I don't know, no, he doesn't. He gives John this really cosmic uh, vision of Jesus. He responds with a powerful vision of who Jesus is, and, um, and it's a different vision of Jesus than John has probably ever seen before. John, who's writing the book of Revelation, was one of Jesus' disciples. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what he says about himself. Um, John would have really had a great Instagram post, I'm sure, about himself. He would have had a really nice account. But Okay, so John has seen Jesus in a million different ways. He walked with him for three years. He laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. He saw Jesus make... Uh, loaves and bread for five, loaves and fish for 5,000 people. He saw people healed. He saw all kinds of visions of Jesus. But um, as Daryl Johnson says, in this new situation, one of great fear, John needed more. And I want to suggest that in this day and time that we need a new vision of Jesus as well, that this is true of all of us. John needed to see Jesus as he was now, and I want to suggest that all of us need to see Jesus as he is now. So let's read the text, Revelation 1, 9 through 20. It says this, I, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard him behind me. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so let's work our way through this text. Um, this is the beginning of John's vision, like we said. Um, and it starts by saying that he heard a loud voice and turned to see someone like the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. Now, um, John is using his words very carefully here. He uses the words son of man. If you've read the Gospels before, before, you know that Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. And um, it, it, this is a Hebraic way of saying human. Um, it's, it's a way of saying human. But in fact, in this context, it's meaning much more than just human. John didn't just see human. He is, um, he's using a technical term, referring to the term um, that comes from the Old Testament. He is referring to a messianic figure alluded to in Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you were a, a Jewish person in this day, you would know right away that this, the Son of Man, this is who, this is who uh, John is talking about here. Let's read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes about this messianic king coming. This messianic figure, this messianic son of man. Now all the people in the Old Testament all the students, all the rabbis would read this and say, yes, this is the kind of Messiah that we are looking for. In the intertestamental period, which is the space of time that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the people were often talking and writing about this son of man that was to come, okay? And they're, they're referring to Daniel chapter 7. Now fast forward to the Gospels. Jesus comes, and where is he born? In a manger, and then he's like regular, right? The Gospels are really clear about that, that Jesus was regular. He got tired. He got tired in his body. He got tired of being with people. He had to go and be with his father. He got hungry. He went to sleep on boats like a regular person. He laid his head on a pillow 
And the people, understandably, were confused. Like, I, what? I thought th- this Daniel, I thought the Messiah was going to come and be like a Daniel chapter 7 son of man. Like authority, dominion, power. Like when, you, when I read that Daniel chapter 7, I always read it in a WWE kind of voice. Because it's like powerful. And Jesus, he was like, let the little kids come to me. It wasn't like authority, power. It was like, here I am, I've got friends, and I go to sleep, and I sleep on boats when everybody else feels like they're going to die. And I heal blind people, and, you know, I'm born in a stable. And um, the disciples were expecting this Danielic son of man, and we see this all throughout the Gospels. You know, Peter cutting off the guy's ear. They were expecting this Daniel chapter 7. So, but understand that the people needed to see that Jesus was going to be fully man and fully God. This is actually the power of the gospel. Now, fast forward um, to the second and third generation Christians. The struggle is now in the opposite direction. The church was thoroughly aware of the historicity. I tried to say that. I practiced that even in prayer time that I could say it historicity of Jesus. They knew people ate with Jesus. They knew people touched him. They knew people who knew Jesus, okay? So they knew John, that he had been with Jesus. Um, The danger now is that they would miss the power of God that worked in him. The danger is that they would no longer see Jesus as the Danielic son of God, that they would no longer see that Jesus was not just some man, but he was God in the flesh, And it was time, Revelation chapter 1, to reintroduce the apocalyptic splendor of Daniel's son of man. I want to suggest that in the 21st century, that most of us are well aware of Jesus, who is our friend. The Jesus who is close to sinners. The Jesus who comes next to us and carries our burdens. But I want to suggest that in the 21st century that we need a reintroduction to the Son of Man, to the Danielic majestic Messiah who carries all power in his hands. I want to suggest that oftentimes you and I as Christians forget that this Jesus who is our friend is also supremely God, holy, powerful, Nicholas Burdayev said this, historical Christianity has grown cold and intolerably prosaic. Its activity consists mainly of adapting itself to the commonplace, to the bourgeoisie patterns and habits of life, but Christ came to send heavenly fire on earth. This is the mission of our Jesus. And this is the reintroduction I am praying that all of us get to Jesus. Okay, so let's get to the vision that John had. And I'm praying, listen, As I prayed for you this week, I prayed that God would give you a new vision of Jesus. That yes, we would see him as the friend of sinners because he is. But that we would at the same time see him as all powerful. Okay, so it says, John said, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Uh, Later on in this encounter, at the end of the text, we find out that the seven lampstands are churches. Now, it's not just uh, the seven churches. We're going to get into this next week, but the seven churches is not just like Jesus had seven favorite churches. 
And he picked those seven ones, and if you were out, too bad, you picked the wrong church. Uh, The seven, as we talked about last week, uh, represents always in apocalyptic literature, completeness, fullness, perfection. And it's just talking to all of the churches. So what's interesting is that it says that Jesus stands amongst the lampstands. Isn't that such a beautiful picture for us today? Jesus is not standing from far away. He's not, and also, he's not just with you in your bedroom. We have so westernized, listen, in in our western thinking, we have so individualized the gospel that we've said things like, well, it doesn't really, I mean, the church doesn't really matter. I mean, if I find a good one and I like four of the songs they sing, maybe I'll go once every six weeks. Revelation doesn't allow us to do that, though, because where is Jesus standing? He's standing amongst, in and amongst the lampstands, in and amongst the churches, which is why we must come back to a robust ecclesiology that says, yes, the church is made up of people who are difficult, but Jesus is here, (laughs) but Jesus stands amongst us. What's amazing is this, um, is that churches characteristically in this time were poor and broken. They're broken down just like churches are today, and yet Jesus still chooses to stand amongst them. Isn't that amazing that he chooses to stand amongst us And this is not, this is Christ in his splendid form, in his majestic form, chooses to stand amongst us. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise when we think about how he came in a manger and his death on a cross. God deliberately set Jesus amongst the flawed and the common. And um, this is why we can't say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't really like his church. We can't say that. Because God actually put Jesus amongst his church, the way of the gospel. Um, So the Son of Man stands in the middle. And what's amazing about that is he doesn't stand from afar. In the middle of your struggles, in the middle of all of our problems, here he is standing amongst us. It's a really good feeling. Like, you know, when you're in trouble and you're by yourself, that's a difficult thing to be. But But when you recognize that Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his majesty stands amongst us, you can make it. You can make it. No matter what you came in facing today, you can make it. Jesus is standing right amongst you. And then it says, um, John says, he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, I think oftentimes when we read this, what we think is, oh, okay, so Jesus was still wearing first century clothes. He hasn't really been keeping up with them all. Um, and it, 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 we sort of get into this like, oh, that will be the church, canta- remember when we did church cantatas? And people, you would get out the robes and you'd always put sashes around because we don't really think about what that means, right? We just think, well, people loved wearing sashes like we like wearing scarves. It's a fashion statement. When in fact it actually isn't. And th- this actually, the, the fact that we become so common and yet so unknowledgeable <laughs> Uh, doesn't help us. So what, what John is talking about here is that Jesus is dressed in priestly garments. When the garments were white and would come down to your feet, that would indicate that you were a priest. Now, a priest in the Old Testament was always a bridge builder. He bridged the divide between the people and God. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is our bridge. He is the bridge that brings us to God. That's why Jesus said, you can't come to the Father except through me. I am the bridge. I am the way. I am all the things that Jesus is. These priestly garments uh, tell us this. Um, 
And, and it also says that um, he has a sash going around his chest. So when a priest would go get ready to do the work that he was about to do, the sash would go around his waist. We, we actually never see that in cantatas. Um, you never see them. We usually wear them around our, like, a, like a sash. Um, but actually, in the first century, when a priest would go to do the work, they would put the sash around their waist. Only when the work was done would they wear the sash around their chest. And this would indicate to everybody that was seeing them, oh, they've finished the work, they've completed the work, they've done the sacrifices, everything is done. When John says that he turned around and saw the Son of Man in robes down to his feet with the sash around his chest, it is reminding us that Jesus, our bridge, has completed the work. This is why we live by grace. This is why you don't have to like stress out, I messed up last week, oh, I'm gonna, no, no, the work has been done for you. Jesus has already completed the work. Your salvation is sure. Then John goes on to talk about his hair. He says the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. So usually, you know, when you look at somebody, the first thing you look at is their clothes. And um, it's particular, somebody has a uniform, is wearing a uniform, right? Like you look at a, a, someone who's a nurse and you can see their uniform or a doctor. Or you look at, and then the next thing we look at is their hair. Now, I, as I was writing this, I was like, nobody will admit this. But it's true, right? This is what we do. Um, and, and so John, because oftentimes we look at what somebody's position is, and then we look at their face to see what kind of a person they look like. And John talks about now the, the face of Jesus, and he starts with the hair. The white hair is not, and this, this is where it's apocalyptic literature. It is not saying that Jesus just got really old in heaven, and he got white hair. No, white always indicates wisdom in apocalyptic literature. What they're telling us is that Jesus is, is wise and that he is ageless. Um, Jesus was here at the beginning, he will be here at the end, and he is with us right here in the middle. It denotes wisdom and purity. And when we read this, we remember the prophet's promise, your sins are like scarlet, but they shall be as white as snow. They shall become like wool. That's why his hair is like, it's that reminder to us when it says his hair is white like wool. It's not like Jesus just had fuzzy hair and needed relaxer in his hair. Like, it wasn't his hair, he wasn't having a bad hair day. The wool, the word wool there is so that we're reminded that Jesus came to make our sins clear. Can you see this in Revelation? That nothing in Revelation is new. (laughs) It's reminding us of who Jesus was for us. That he is the one that takes away our sin. Remember the psalmist prayer, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Christ is the fulfilled promise and answered prayer, clean and holy. Then John goes on to say his eyes are like a flame of fire. Um, John is declaring that Jesus is not only pure, but he is purifying. His eyes purify us. Fire illuminates and it penetrates, but it also cleanses and burns away impurities. Um, When... when, um, 
when Jesus looks at us, when we look at Jesus, rather, his eyes have this ability to get through all the masks that we put on. And this is why it's like, it's, it's incongruent that we would have a church face, a spiritual face, and then like our real selves. This is why we actually have to really pursue authenticity. Because the eyes of Jesus actually don't allow us to put on masks. The eyes of Jesus burn through all of that business, all of our, I don't know, trying to be fancy and trying to be one way and really living another way. If we really get a vision of Jesus, it burns through all of that. That's why I always say, I, I think it's better. I, I think it's better when we just be who we are. Rather than trying to put on like airs that we're somebody that we are not. When we pastored in the inner city for, I'll, I'll tell you the difference, pastored in this inner city for 10 years. I mean, every Sunday was like a real wild time. You never knew who was going to come up what they were gonna say, what they were gonna do, but I'll tell you one thing that I knew was true, is that people just didn't, um, oh, but there was no pretending. Because like, if you're on drugs, you're on drugs, right? Like, the, there's no pretending. We do a funny thing, though, when we sort of have it marginally together. Do you know you have like, we all, mar by the way, we all marginally have it together. It, by the grace of God, God is making us more like him. But we all still have stuff in our lives that we're working out and things that we're, you know, that are weird about us. But when we work so hard to try to, like, uh, make ourselves look good, what happens is we get our eyes off of Jesus because we're working so hard to, like, make it seem like we've got everything together. And when we get our eyes off of Jesus, he can no longer use his eyes of fire to burn away all the stuff. This is hard for us to see in ourselves, though. I'm, I'm asking myself this question. Jesus, have I been looking to you enough? Have I been keeping my eyes fixed on you so that you can burn away all the stuff? Now listen to me. When Jesus actually burns us, it's not with, a, it's not with meanness. It's a burning that, that make, purifies us. So this is a question I ask myself, and it's the question I'll ask you today. When was the last time the eyes of Jesus got on you? When was the last time you felt the burning and clarifying of Jesus, where he straightened you out on a few things? And those of us who are not prone to confrontation, uh, <laughs> this is difficult, because <laughs> we don't like to confront, and we also don't like it when people confront us. But we have to be bigger than our culture or our own personalities. We actually have to say, Jesus, I actually need your confrontation in my life. I need you to burn away things in my life. And then John goes on to say that his feet, he talks about his feet, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So Jesus has burnished bronze feet. Again, um, what wouldn't be helpful in this case is if you drew a picture of Jesus like this, because it it's, it's it's not a physical, it's literal, and then also it's metaphorical, because we're, okay, so Jesus, you're not going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to be pounding around with 
bronze feet. John is saying something here. The original readers steeped in the book of Daniel, again, Revelation often comes back to the book of Daniel, so as we study the book of Revelation, we're actually also studying the book of Daniel. Um, They would have understood the point he was making. Um, For in another vision in in Daniel, and you can look at this this week, a vision was given to Nebuchadnezzar about all the kingdoms of the world. And in this vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, um, the feet were clay, and they began to crumble. They didn't have a lot of strength to them. But the glorified son of man has feet of burnished bronze. They're strong and steady and firm. He's tested and strengthened by fire. His kingdom rests on feet that will endure forever. This is why, and this this is why, listen, this is why we don't have to be afraid. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid about what's going on in the world. The kingdom that our lives are built on is sure. It's sure. It's not shaky. It's, we don't have to worry about, I mean, we're, we're going to pray, but we're praying from a place of victory. We're not praying like, oh God, I don't know if you've figured out what's happening over there in Europe. It's very concerning, God. We don't have to be worried about pandemics. Now, we've got to be wise. This is not a call not to be wise, but it's a call to say, I'm not going to let worry plow me under because the God I serve has brownished burns feet bronze feet, which means that he is a kingdom that will and will not and cannot be shaken. This this image also suggests that wherever Jesus walks, he can overcome any opposition. You have a God who is strong, stronger than any of the things, burns away all evil. And then it says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. First of all, this conveys that Jesus speaks. This is really important for us to remember. We've talked about this before. Jesus said this in the book of John. My sheep know my voice. They hear me. Jesus speaks. And um, even when he ascended to the Father, so this is Jesus after he's ascended to the Father, he's still speaking. Jesus is still speaking. This is amazing, right? God is speaking. Jesus is speaking. And... um, we don't know what Jesus is saying at this point, but do you know that your voice, they say that your voice and your tone and all that kind of stuff matters. I think it's, at a, and I could be wrong, it's about 70%. That all your body language and your tone of voice, you know, if you're a parent and your child says, and you say, uh, I need you to be sorry for that, and they say, sorry. And you know, they're not sorry at all. It's not because they said sorry, but they don't mean sorry. They just mean go away from me which doesn't go over well in any home. Uh, but So John is talking about the tone and timber of Jesus' voice in this, and this is actually as important as what Jesus is going to say. He says that his voice is like many waters, like the rushing of many waters. Now, if you've ever been by rushing waters, you know that you can't hear anything else except for the rushing waters. It drowns everything else out. I want to suggest that all of us need to hear the voice of Jesus at greater intervals than we're hearing him right now. Because there is a lot of voices coming at us. A lot of voices from every spectrum, from every part of the world. Like, not even, we're not even talking about like advertisements. I'm talking about, like you get on the crow child and you've got so many voices coming at you. Rushing waters drown out all those voices. But there's a weird quality to rushing water. It's really loud, like overpoweringly loud, but it's also very peaceful. 
Like you actually, to sit by rushing water, if you've ever sat by a waterfall, you know that all of a sudden you feel the peace of God come over you. And this is exactly what John says the voice of Jesus is like. I want to suggest this is why we, we actually have to be pursuing the voice of God. You know, um, maybe, maybe some of you are here and um, you just say, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Or, or like many of us, you've said, I, I'm going to spend time with the Lord now. And what happens is you're looking, looking for that and you fall asleep. Has anybody had that? Yes. Yeah. I want to suggest a great place to start that is to pray with other people, to listen for the voice of God with other people. This is why um, we, we gather here every Sunday morning at 9.30. You're all welcome to come. Now, I don't think that you can only hear the voice of God in church. I have no doubt that you can hear the voice of Jesus in your own room, in your kitchen, all over the place. But sometimes it's good to learn with other people. I want to encourage you to come to that half hour, just to take a half an hour and say, Jesus, I want to hear your voice. I need to listen for you. I need to stop what's happening in my life. Uh, and then John goes on to say, and in his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars, uh, people would have seen that as the planets. At that time in the first century, the planets, they, could, they had only identified seven planets. And so when you said, and they called them stars, um, and so when they'd say things like the seven stars, that meant like the whole universe. And so what John is saying is that Jesus is holding the whole universe in his right hand. Uh, this was important because the influence of astrology was um, permeated the entire culture, the entire first century culture. Um, and the shifting locations of the planets were believed to determine your destiny. Um, so ev everything, everything in the ancient world uh, was said to be controlled by the planets. So like how your life was going, well, that was because Mars was, they didn't call it Mars back then, but that's because that star had moved and things went well for you because, I mean, the whole world was permeated. Astrologers, uh, it's not like today where it was like a sideshow. Astrologers were a very important, it was an important job. They got paid really, really well to, to predict the future. And so when John is saying here, Jesus held the seven stars in his hand. What he's saying is, listen up, everybody. All these things that you think are being connected by this, no, 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 Jesus holds it all. And, and it's, it's very particular to his right hand in ancient culture. The right hand is where you were doing things. In Christ's right hand, he runs the cosmos. The cosmos and the planets do not control us. Christ controls them. This is, by the way, why as Christians we don't lean into things like astrology. Revelation 1 tells us that Jesus holds all of that in his hands. He is the one directing that. And this is why we don't have to get, I, I get worried when I see Christians saying things like, oh, I'm a, whatever your sign is, or what, that, that's antithetical to the gospel. Revelation 1 tells us that Jesus is holding all of that. He's got all of that in his control and in his hand. And this is, again, why we don't have to be worried. You can see now where the first century church would have read this and thought, ah, I can be at peace. And I want to call you as men and women of God to the same kind of peace. This is what the book of Revelation contends for, that we would believe that this Jesus who holds the stars in his hands holds my life in his hands. And then it says, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. 
In recent days in Christendom, and let me just speak a little bit to some of the neo-Calvinism that has come um, to the church in the last couple of days that is concerning to me. Uh, in, in recent days, there's been this idea that like, oh, this is a sign that Jesus is coming at the world with a sword, and Jesus is tough, and he's got tattoos on his leg. We're going to come to that in Revelation. Uh, and, and in fact, this is a, not at all what John is saying. John is not saying that Jesus is like this warmongering guy with like laser cat eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. But you can see that if you read this incorrectly, this is, this is a ditch you can land in. John's not saying that at all. What John is saying is that the words of Jesus penetrate our heart. This goes to 1 Timothy, where uh, we understand the, the book of Hebrews, where the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Um, Jesus, in, this, in a similar way, John uses the metaphor of the sword to demonstrate what takes place when Jesus speaks. <sighs> that what happens when Jesus speaks is that it breaks down all of our preconceived ideas. It breaks down all the parts of our hearts that have grown apathetic, that have died. He cuts those parts out. And this is the kind of God we serve. His words actually change us, which again reminds us that what we need is a new revelation. What we need is a fresh revelation of the words of Jesus that comes and penetrates our hearts and our minds. And then John says, his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. You can feel in this part John is reaching for a way to convey the unconveyable. Jesus' face was so brilliant that he had to compare it to nature's brightest wonder, the sun. In the Old Testament, um, this is the greatest blessing imaginable. They would pray it over themselves. Let your face shine on us. What's interesting, though, in the Old Testament, nobody could look at the face of God and live. Moses, in fact, was the only person to see the face of God and live. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he actually makes a way, he makes access for us so that we can see the face of God, so that we can look into the eyes of Jesus and be transformed. His face is brilliant. This echoes a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel when Ezekiel sees the Lord and he is clothed in splendor. And John says this. I want you to hear this. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, when we see God in all of his brilliance, it actually should undo us. John is not the first person to talk about this in the scripture. In fact, uh, Isaiah talks about this, Ezekiel talks about when they saw the Lord, that they were undone. And they're not just speaking about a metaphorical, like, like, like John's not just writing a poem here. This is literal. He sees Jesus in all of his glory, and he becomes undone. He falls as though dead. But here is what is amazing. A few verses back, it says that Jesus held the stars in his right hand. Yes? 
He's running, he's running the cosmos in his right hand. But look at this verse. Verse 10, it says, Then he placed his right hand where? On me, John says. The same God that holds the cosmos in his hand, that runs the universe, takes that hand and puts it on you. This is the power of our Jesus. This is the wonder. And he says this to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I, I, I want you just for this moment, just before we close here, whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're going through, I want you to think about for just a moment the most difficult thing that you're facing right now. For most of us, you've thought about it three seconds before I said it. The thing that's keeping you up at night, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your finances, maybe, I don't know what it is. The thing that's eating away at you just close your eyes for a moment. Close your eyes just for a moment. Yeah, that, I, I want you to, yeah, the, the thing that you just think, I can't solve it on my own. You see, Christianity is not humanism. It's not a form of humanism that meets on Sunday morning. It is a meeting with this Jesus. I want you just in this moment to say, Jesus, would you give me a new revelation of yourself? And then I want you to hear the voice of Jesus to you. Let me just read this scripture. He says this to you, do not be afraid. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you feel like you cannot get through, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Whatever it is you are facing today, Jesus stands with you. Today, I, I, I believe that all of us need a new encounter with Jesus. The book of Revelation grounds us in the first chapter to remember that it is all about Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in chapter 6, no matter what happens in chapter 12, it is all about Jesus. Not just a safe, fluffy Jesus, but a majestic and powerful Jesus who with the same hand holds the stars in his hand and also comforts us. Can we just pray this morning? God, I thank you for every person that's here. Jesus, I thank you that the same way that you visited John on the island of Patmos, that you're still wanting to meet each of us. I pray that your voice would be like rushing waters today, drowning out all, all of the noise. 
I pray that your words to us would be like a double-edged sword, God, getting to the parts of our hearts that only you can get to. God, may you give us the courage to look for you, to look to you. Thank you that you are wise, all-powerful, and that you tell us not to be afraid. And so we look to you today, Jesus. We look to you today. Would you just meet us where we are? In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.